Okay, we are in Nehemiah chapter 4, and this morning we'll be starting at verse 13. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you uh, for this record of how you supported your people as they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, uh, the city of, of your choosing on this earth. We uh, pray that as we study that you'll open our hearts and understanding, minds to understand your word, how it applies uh, to them and how it applies to us today. We just pray you'll bless our time now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I think to get uh, context this morning, uh, we will we'll do some reading. It's a small group, so we all get to read a few times. We'll start at verse uh, 7 and read right through the end of the chapter. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7. Joe, you get a couple Not names. Six <laughs> You want to start with six? You can. <laughs> uh, okay. But when Shambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the people of, of Ashad heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gas, gaps were being closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. Then Judah said, The strength of the laborers is failing. And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to their work. Then the Jews who lived near then came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring board, and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. And it came about from that day on that half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them carried, held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper staying inside the Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as, us as guards by night and as workers by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me 
None of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon, even to the water. Okay, now last week, uh, we saw in verse 6 that the, the enemies had been mocking the Jews, but they went right back to work, and that's how they responded. So they worked on the wall with all their heart. However, uh, we saw that as the wall was about halfway completed, uh, the people became pretty exhausted. They were doing a lot of work. They were physically exhausted. And as the wall was getting closer and closer to being finished, their enemies were getting desperate about how can we stop this work because they did not want to see the walls completed. And so they got together and they plotted... uh, I don't know if you call them sneak attacks or terrorist attacks to slip in amongst the workers and kill them. Uh, And as a result, the people were getting pretty much demoralized by this time. So this project now is facing problems from without, outside of them, from their enemies, and they had problems within. People were getting demoralized and tired. And this is a place where Nehemiah really needs to step up as a leader to keep this project going and to keep keep his workers and his troops uh, motivated. And that's what we'll see here in verse 13. How does he respond um, to the problems? So verse 13 says, Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, And I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. So in verse 12, they had gotten multiple reliable reports that there was an attack uh, plotted out and planned. And so Nehemiah knew that he had to do something about it. It was not just an empty threat. It wasn't just mocking. But it was a legitimate danger. Now, as we've gone through the book, once in a while we'll find places where the Hebrew is really hard to understand, and this is one of those spots. Uh, but the consensus uh, says that he organized the men who could fight into family groups. He organized them by family groups. And this, this makes sense with the Jews because they typically were organized by, you had the 12 tribes, um, Within the tribes, you had clans, and within the clans, you had families. And so that's how they organized themselves normally. And even when we went through chapter 3, where we talked about the builders of the wall and the different sections, a lot of times it was family groups that would take on a certain section of wall. So this made sense to organize this way. Um, second thing, Nehemiah made sure they all were well-armed, because it lists... Uh, in verse 13, that they had swords, they had spears, and they had bows. So apparently there was plenty of weapons to go around, make sure everybody was armed. And then third, Nehemiah paid special attention to the most vulnerable places where the wall was either lowest or was most exposed to attack. He says the exposed places, the space behind the wall and the exposed places. So that's his organization. And then he goes, and the next step, he has to rally the discouraged workers, rally the troops. We see this in verse 14. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, 
Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So he looks everything over and then he addresses all the people. And he starts with, do not be afraid. And this has got to be one of the most common commands in the Bible. Um, I've heard that it occurs 365 times, one for each day. I did not count them, but <laughs> apparently someone else did. Um, and, and this is because of what seems to be the most common failing of God's people. Fear, which is essentially a lack of trust in God. Um, and I think we have all know it. We all become anxious and fearful because we really don't think that God has our best interests in mind. And we don't trust Him. And we have to remember that uh, He is worthy of our trust. If He was willing to die on the cross for us, He does have our best interests in mind. So Nehemiah tells them, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. And that He is great and awesome. And we have that phrase back in chapter 1. Someone like to read verse 5 for us. Nehemiah 1, 5. I said, I beseech you, O Lord, o Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Okay, so this is all the way back in Susa. This is before Nehemiah even goes into King Artaxerxes. He, he goes to the great and awesome God. And this is a phrase that the Jews should have been uh, should have been aware of. They should have known and remembered it because it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 10. So let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And we'll read through a passage here. And we'll, we'll read around again, I think, because it's a little longer. So it's Deuteronomy chapter 10, and we will read from verse 12 through verse 21. That means we don't have to read the last single last verse. But we'll start at verse 12. Joe, you want to read verse 12 for us? And now, Israel, what does the Lord God ask of you, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. The heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and He chose their descendants after them. You above all peoples, as it is this day. then your hearts, and stiffen your neck no more. For the Lord your God is God of gods, is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and shows his love for the alien by giving them food and clothing. You are also to love the resident aliens, since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast, 
and take oaths in his name. He is your praise and he is your God, he who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. There is a ton of theology in that passage. Um, you know, we see the answer, Christ's answer to the Pharisees about which is the greatest commandment, you know, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is here, and, and a lot of other things. Um, but the emphasis here is on God's greatness and his special concern for the Jews. We look in verse 17 in particular. The Lord your God is, he's the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. There's none other like him. And that's where this we see the phrase, great and awesome God. And then again in verse 21, where he says, God has done these great and awesome things for you. So we have that phrase, great and awesome, and, and so that's where it comes from. Uh, Nehemiah knew Deuteronomy. We've seen that before. Um, and some of the application here is in uh, verse 20, where it says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You're not to fear the Samaritans. You're to fear God, because God is greater than the Samaritans. <laughs> that's kind of the application. Don't have to fear them because you have a great and awesome God who is worthy of your fear. The Samaritans were not. So <clears throat> Nehemiah begins by um, reminding them of who God is. And we saw last week in verse ten they, you know, they were becoming discouraged, and that little song that they were singing, it did not mention God at all. They had forgotten God, they became discouraged. Here again, they're forgetting God and they become fearful. And that's what happens when we forget God, we get detached from God, we get fear, we get discouragement sets in. So we have to remember to remember God. Now he also reminds them of what they are actually fighting for and what they're working for. Uh, it's the safety and the prosperity of their families, both their immediate family and also the extended family. So he talks about fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So the wall would give them immediate protection from raiders, and from the um, enemies around them. And they also, as the Jews, they had been oppressed for decades. They'd been persecuted by the surrounding uh, pagan nations, this would finally give them uh, some freedom from that persecution and, and oppression. So they have a great deal to gain by continuing the work, by not giving up and continuing the work. So this is how Nehemiah goes and, and rallies the troops. He's showing his leadership here. Going on to verse 15. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. Then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. So the enemies heard about all this planning that was going on, uh, the, the handing out of the weapons, the organizing, and they realized that it's, it would be awfully hard to mount a surprise attack when your enemy already knew that you were coming. Um, 
they knew it would be difficult to do a terrorist attack or something, and so they abandoned their plans. And Nehemiah realizes that, that God really should get the credit for frustrating their plans um, because God is the one who changed his hearts. They, God is the one that made them realize, the enemies, that this isn't going to work. We can't attack. And so he gives God the credit here. <clears throat> Let's look at a couple of passages that talk about God frustrating the plans of the enemies. Let's turn to Job. Job chapter 5. Someone would like to read verses 12 and 13 for us. Job 5, 12 and 13. the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness, and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. Okay. So here God is frustrating and thwarting the plans of the evil ones. Um, Job's uh, friends recognize that. Let's also turn to Isaiah chapter 8. see this same idea but more uh, with respect to Israel. Isaiah chapter 8, someone like to read verse 10 for us. Devise a plan, it will fail. Make a prediction, it will not happen, for God is with us. Okay, so here he's talking to their enemies. Come up with a plan, you're going to be thwarted. I like that word thwarted. <laughs> we see that a few times. Uh, Proposal will not stand. Why? Because God is with us. God will protect us from your evil plans. So they are encouraged by this. Interesting. In that chapter, just down a little ways, it talks about you're not. You are not to say it is a conspiracy. I think that's what Steve must have been quoting when he was here. And he was. I just oh. happened to notice it, yeah. Yeah, I think that was a conspiracy. I don't know if that was against Isaiah or not. Because when you read the book of Jeremiah, you see that the, his enemies were plotting against him too. <clears throat> now, one of the things the commentaries note here is, you know, once, once they realized they couldn't do a sneak attack, if they wanted to stop, if their enemies wanted to stop construction, they would have had to basically march troops up and attack. In that case, you would now have the province of Samaria attacking the province of Judah. And King Artaxerxes would not put up with two of his provinces attacking each other. Somebody would get canned, probably Sanballat. And I think he realized that. He couldn't, you know, he couldn't he basically had run out of options. Um, with a terrorist attack, he could always say, well, I didn't know it was going to happen. He could have distanced himself. But in this case, uh, he, it would have obviously been his plan. So, so what did the Jews do? Well, they go back to work. Um, and uh, 
Nehemiah says they all returned to their assigned portion of the wall. Now they will change their procedures because they realize there is a constant threat. They need to provide some protection. So the uh, next few verses we'll, we'll read about how, how they plan uh, to be able to continue construction and yet at the same time provide some uh, security. So looking at verse 16. And it came about from that day on that half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. So these are the men who are under his command. Uh, they're either called my men or my servants, depending on your translation. So they were specifically under Nehemiah's commands. And... They were going to serve as an armed guard and also continue working on the wall. If we look in chapter 5, would someone like to read verse 16 for us? Instead, I devoted myself to the work of this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Okay, so here Nehemiah is talking about what he was doing. He was applying himself to the work. His men, again, his men or his servants, were, were working on the wall. Um, <coughs> so there's a little bit of a question as to, you know, who are these people? If we go back to, Let's look at chapter 2 and verse 9. This is when Nehemiah arrives. He says, And I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent me with me officers of the army and horsemen. So he had military guard with him. Um, and if he was just going to be in... Uh, Palestine for a short period of time before he returned to Susa, it would make sense that this military guard would have stayed with him and then would, they would plan to accompany him back to Susa uh, two or three months later or whenever it was that he had told the, the king. So it's very likely that, that these are uh, military men. And he says, half of his men continued to work on the wall while the other half were armed and stood guard. When we went through chapter 3 of Nehemiah, there was no listing of him and his men working on a section of the wall. But it appears that they were doing that, and he may have just uh, omitted his name uh, from the list. But when we look at uh, the armament that they have, it talks about uh, spears, and bows as their weapons. It does not mention a sword. And if we remember, you know, he was sent with horsemen. I don't know if they used a sword off a horse, but spears and bows may have been what the, I guess you call it the cavalry, used. But it also mentions um, shields and breastplates or mail. Now, no one else on this project had shields or 
breastplates. So again, that kind of, to me, indicates that these may have been his armed guard. And the breastplates or the mail would have been protection against arrows. And I can, I would think that, you know, if this was cavalry, they might fight against cavalry and they'd be, you know, both would be armed with spears and, and arrows and the breastplates and the shields would make sense. But it does not specifically tell us that. But, um, so they had more armor than the rest of the people. So he sets his captains or his leaders behind the people of Judah who were doing the building. And I think this way they, I have a feeling again that they were spread out uh, so that they could oversee sections of the wall so that they could watch for attacks and then um, be able to command the defense at different places along the wall. And again, that's a little bit of speculation on my part as to how to set up a defensive system. But this is, he's talking about the specific men under his command in verse 16. Now going on, we'll see uh, more about everybody else. Looking at verses 17 and 18. It says, those who were rebuilding the wall and those who were carrying burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. So um, Nehemiah made sure all the construction workers were armed. And this mentions two classes of workers. We have the, those who were burden barriers or burden carriers, and then we also have the builders. So much of the work of reconstructing the wall, which is clearing out rubble, not just clearing a path for the wall, but also um, looking for stones, decent stones from the rubble, and then carrying those to the wall. And then the, they'd give them to the builders, and the builders were, the, I guess, the more skilled craftsmen. They would set the, the stones in place to build the wall. Um, some of us can't necessarily pile up stones and get them to stay. <laughs> so uh, there took a little bit of skill to do that. Um, one thing that they do sometimes in constructing walls is they will build two walls of finished stones and then fill the gap between them with rubble. Now, and this was they actually would build houses that way. Um, like early American houses, is two uh, stone walls with rubble between them. And I did a little research on this. The Romans did this prior to the third century BC. So that would be about this time. I couldn't find anything linking Jews to using this type of construction, but it's possible. So if this is what they were doing, then the burden barriers had an awful lot of rubble to carry because uh, they had to fill in between the the two walls with all with the rubble that was available, and that would that would make sense to build a wall that way. So the burden carriers they used one hand to carry their load, and they held a weapon in the other. And the commentaries said this word for weapon means something that can be thrown, basically, like a javelin or a missile of some kind. And one of the commentaries said, well, maybe this missile was just a big rock. Yeah. So, rubble. Yeah, rubble. Um, 
And I think of the song that talks about David and Goliath and how David took a rock to a sword fight. And I, I'm not sure if, if I would feel good carrying a rock when I knew the enemy was going to be attacking with a sword or a spear. Uh, I, I guess you could fend them off long enough to escape. But um, they had a weapon in one hand. Apparently they could balance their load or carry it with just one hand. Um, the commentaries also said that uh, this could be translated as they had a weapon close at hand rather than in their hand. But again, if you, if you look at a burden barrier, he's picking up a load at one place and carrying it across to somewhere else. You just about have to carry your weapon with you because you're moving around. So just planting it in one spot isn't, doesn't seem to make sense. Um, now the builders, on the other hand, they needed both hands to work. So they were given swords with sheaths where they could uh, gird them to their sides, as it says. So they had carried swords uh, on them, but they had their hands free to work. Um, it also says, Nehemiah had the trumpeter stood near me, it says. Um, what this tells us, for one thing, is he's out overseeing the work, and he's looking for attacks. So he's out there working with them. Um, now this only mentions one trumpeter. Uh, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, wrote that they had trumpeters spaced out along the wall about every 500 feet. And for, a, again, we saw 1.7 miles of wall, that would require 18 trumpeters if they were spaced that way. So that's what he had written. Um, and when we look at the next two verses, that actually makes a lot of sense. Because here's the rest of the plan in verses 19 and 20. And I said to the nobles, officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So here Nehemiah brings everybody together again and he explains the, this defensive plan to them, to all the leaders and to all the people. So his leaders or his commanders, they needed to know what the plan was so that they could direct it. The people needed to know <coughs> so they would know how to respond you know, they wouldn't be caught totally unaware when the, they hear a trumpet. You know, what does that mean? They would know what it would mean, and then they would look to their leader for instructions. It was also encouraging them to know that there was a plan, that if they got attacked, others would come to help them. So that was encouraging to them. So this work is spread out. The armed men are spread out, and they're vulnerable at the point of attack. So if they are attacked, they are to blow the trumpet and other troops are going to quickly uh, come to uh, reinforce them and help them defend themselves. And so this is where, to me, it makes more sense if you've got trumpeters spread out around the wall. Um, if you've got just one trumpeter standing by Nehemiah, first, you know, and you're, you're attacked at a far corner of the the uh, city, 
They need to send a runner with a message to Nehemiah saying, we're being attacked. He has to tell the trumpeter to blow the horn. And Do they have a different signal for each section of the wall? How does that work? You know, just a horn blaring, everybody would look, well, where's the attack? Whereas if you had trumpets spread out along each section of the wall, they could hear the horn and go to the horn. And I think that's probably what the plan was. And then finally, uh, at the end, Nehemiah reminds them, God will fight for us. So that is the last word of encouragement. Uh, God will fight for us if they were attacked. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy again, this time to chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20. So I'd like to read verse 4. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Okay, over and over again you see through the uh, Pentateuch. The Lord your God is the one who goes before you. He fights for you. Um, and Moses is telling them that. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 23. Joshua is the one who actually led them into the land and fought the battles. Joshua, 23. Joshua chapter 23, and would someone like to read verses 9 and 10 for us? For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you, and as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to fight a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. Okay, so here's the fulfillment of the promise that we read in Deuteronomy. This is near the end of Joshua. He's saying, look what happened. Just like God promised that he would fight for you, he has done it. You've seen, you've seen God do it in action. Um, you've gone into battle totally outnumbered and sent the enemy running. Not because you were such a great warrior, but because God was with you and he fought for you. So again, Nehemiah is reminding them of who God is and what his promises are, and especially his promises toward his chosen people, that he will fight for them. Okay, well this is where we are out of time, so we will need to stop here. Joe, would you like to close in prayer for us this morning? Dear Lord, you thank you for your history for your story that's being told throughout the pages of these, this living book. We thank you for the way we know you're an unchanging God, that you took care of your people there, you'll take care of our, your people now. We thank you for that. We pray for this uh, nation, this pandemic. We pray for the pastor and his message that's coming. That's how we pray. Amen.